we're all feeling it in one way or the other. And I so respect each and every one of you. Uh, you know, obviously I've been keeping tabs on, you know, my networks because as a media company, we do, we're paying attention, we're listening, uh, continuing to educate ourselves and to better serve our readers and our community. Um, I mentioned before we started recording that this is episode 20, so telling of what um, this conversation is meant to have be happening because uh, I think we all know that 2020 has been kind of, you know, dubbed the year of... All, all we're missing is like Godzilla right now, right? Like appearing um, out of nowhere. Um, you know, it was meant to be the year of vision, right? We started 2020 vision and oh boy, have we gotten <laughs> and on so many different fronts. Um, and I'm excited to, to speak about this topic because it's way overdue. It's long overdue. Uh, I think that if anything, this moment in, in time has kind of, unveiled a lot of the people who've been had you know who've had things to say for a very long time and just didn't feel comfortable with making other people uncomfortable and mm -hmm. it's no longer about making people right. uncomfortable it's about doing the right thing and mm -hmm. um which i think that at the end of the day is what we all want right we all right. want to do the right thing not just for ourselves but for others um mm -hmm. we just all have different ways of getting there. It's really interesting because I'm going to let um, Jennifer jump in now and introduce you guys um, that for the most part, a lot of you are educators and I'm actually really excited about that. Um, and for those of you who don't know, Teresa on the bottom right um, is my cousin. Uh, so, <laughs> so this is personal and this is because a lot of the questions that I'm going to, um, go into later actually are rooted from, you know, the experience that I had growing up with Teresa in Ohio and, you know, my first, uh, racial encounter was in Ohio when I lived there and, um, it had to do because my stepfather was an African-American man and I was in a very white community and went to a private white school we were the only latin kids in that uh it was it was rough <laughs> it was rough but i i think that that's you know as we say life prepares you for you know yeah. uh your future and that's where i i gathered my bearings and why i guess i'm such a feisty little latina still right so uh jen please um uh jen for those of you who don't know jennifer is bella's publisher and she always joins me for these conversations uh that are all real talk um so let's jump right in jen you can go ahead and start introducing our panel of course um and as vanessa said you guys all have very impressive bios i was kind of blown mm -hmm. away reading them all before this started. Um, so I want to try to get through them as quickly as possible to keep with the time. Um, but maybe when I mention your name, just give a little wave so everyone knows who you are. Uh, so first we have uh, Lucky Church. Uh, Lucky is a public and client relations specialist with over 15 years in the entertainment industry, specializing as a relationship builder, project manager, and publicist. He has worked with a long list of famous brands, such as Jordan, Nike, Levi, Converse, NFL, NBA, BET, and Universal Records. In 2015, Lucky was recruited into one of New York City's most famous PR firms, Lizzie Grubman Public Relations, as the director of PR, concierge services, and client relations. This eventually led Lucky to a new creative agency, SMF Global, where he became a partner in the global director of PR, working alongside phenomenal brands like Burberry, Showtime, VH1, and NBC. Welcome, Lucky. Thank you so much. 
course. Uh, Dr. Robbie Ludwig is a nationally known psychotherapist and award-winning reporter. She received the 2020 Best of Manhattan Award in Mental Health Practitioner category by the Manhattan Award Program. She is currently the executive producer and host of a Facebook Live show called Talking Live and is a regular on Nightline, CNN, Headline News, and the Fox News Channel, where she talks about psychological and lifestyle issues as well as the criminal mind. She also appears on national television shows such as Daily Mail TV, 2020, the Tamron Hall Show, The View, Fox and & Friends, and Wendy Williams, helping audiences and guests understand the complexities of the human condition. Welcome, Robbie. Thank you for having me. Of course. Uh, Ebony London. <laughs> Ebony Kankem London is a Howard University alum, educator, blogger, and mommy to a new baby boy, who I hope oh, makes an appearance at some point. Uh, <laughs> her, her blog, Ebby Lolo, focuses on lifestyle, health, and beauty, as well as serves as a source of inspiration for women all over the world to use their voice to empower those around them. Ebony was recently featured in our beauty issue, available now, in a feature entitled The Beauty in Each of Us, highlighting the importance of diversity, especially in the beauty industry. Welcome, Ebony. Thank you. Of course. Uh, Vivian Santora is the president and CEO of PowerPlay NYC, an organization dedicated to educating and empowering girls through sports, teaching life skills such as teamwork, leadership, persistence, and tolerance, and fostering self-confidence and self-esteem for life. Prior to joining PowerPlay, Vivian worked extensively in fundraising, politics, and government affairs in New York, Boston, and Washington, D.C. In 2005, she started her own consulting company, providing strategic advice in fundraising, event management, and government affairs for public and private sector clients. Vivian graduated from American University with a master's in public administration and a focus in public policy. In addition to, in addition to earning an MPA, Vivian also holds a bachelor's in both English and women's studies from the University of Buffalo. Welcome, welcome. Stella, uh, there you are. Stella Villalba yeah. was born in Buenos Aires, Argentina, and her parents are both from Paraguay. She grew up in a household where both countries and cultures were celebrated, acknowledged, and respected. Stella has been living in the U.S. for the past 19 years in Columbus, Ohio. She holds a bachelor in English language teaching and a master's degree from the Ohio State University in language, literacy, and culture. She works in Dublin City Schools as an instructional coach where she focuses on providing professional development to the staff on topics such as working with multilingual students, raising our critical consciousness, culturally relevant education, and English language instruction. Welcome. Stella. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. Teresa James is a mother and educator. She has spent almost 30 years raising her four sons, David, Daniel, Excel, and Robert. During this time, she also received a Bachelor of Science in Mathematics Education, a Master of Education degree in Curriculum and Instruction, and an Education Specialist degree in Educational Leadership. Her 28-year professional career has been spent as a teacher and administrator in K-12 public and private schools throughout Indiana. To support her work as a mother and educator and to honor her spirit, Teresa meditates, practices yoga, and is currently training to run her first marathon in November. Good Ooh. luck, Teresa. Thank you. And last but certainly, certainly not least, Danita Chantel, a Bella team member, um, who is an experienced media personality and model. Danita Chantel inspires others to push beyond their fears and live out their dreams. In 2015, she made a career change from medicine to hosting and is currently a freelance entertainment and lifestyle correspondent. She has covered a variety of events, including Tyler Perry's studio grand opening, the VMAs, and Black Girls Rock. A proud alum of Morgan State University, Danita is currently pursuing an MBA at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. 
Welcome, Danita, and thank you so much to all of you for being here. We're so excited. So this, this, this panel is loaded. It's, it's loaded. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's legit. Oh, no, no. These people are, like, amazing. Um, and when you were describing each of them, I could, um, you know, obviously, Vivian, we work with Vivian uh, as part of the mentorship program. We actually took on one of uh, the girls at the beginning of the school year this year. And we have one of our um, mentees, Gael, who has um, even reached out to us last week uh, regarding, you know, everything that's been happening in the world. How can we, how we could help her navigate some of the situations that she's encountering at school, which was, I was very heartened and um, touched uh, that she thought that I could help her. But of course, I've lived lived it so i can i definitely hope and pray that i gave her the words that she uh was looking for to to help her in that process um you know obviously ebony we uh connected uh because of uh a diversity incident that you had in new jersey and i could not let right? that go uh, i couldn't let that go untold and i had to do <laughs> You know, as a as a beauty publication, we had to make it right. And um, when your story went viral on social media, I you know reached out and I was like, "Can your doctor let you fly? We have to do this. Yeah. <laughs> we gotta yeah. do Almost this the, the right way." Almost had the baby in Jersey, and um, <laughs> we were able to then feature and write a story about the beauty in each of us, which is so um, yeah. kind of like a full circle moment given what we're currently navigating, right? Uh, right? Stella, you and I connected years ago when we launched an EDT women group in Ohio through Myra Batances, and I followed your journey up to this point. And of course, I had to have a fellow Latina in this panel. We uh, got it together, uh, right? So. So, um, Teresa, you're my girl, you know that, uh, literally the first role model that I've had, had as a young girl to look up to, uh, she, you were one of the favorite people that I had to look forward to every weekend to see my cousin, Teresa, here she comes. And you were always so gracious and, um, so loving and know that I never told you that enough. So I'm going to try to keep it together here for this panel. Uh, Danita, we worked uh, in Bella for such a long time and you have always made it such uh, a graceful point to always include African-American people, African-American businesses. It's, it's kind of embedded in your mission to uh, be at those events and bring a voice to, you know, to African-American people. And um, I know that I have always welcomed that with open arms. Um, and I say that because with Lucky, when we met for our first business, uh meeting literally was like permission to speak black right now and he just laughed and looked at me like what what, what? did you just say <laughs> uh, no but that was me i was like permission to speak black because we have to have this conversation uh, without it being awkward or without it being um you know uncomfortable and we did and it was how can we support each other you know uh since taking over bella last year um and again i want to i i i always point out that it wasn't that bella never uh highlighted or featured diversity it was never like an unconscious conscious effort it was just not um something like you know the opportunities came and the opportunities happened i have just personally made it my personal miss mission to make an aware decision of who we are highlighting in our magazine and it has to fit uh the current um standard because 
uh, I am a biracial woman and it has to, you know, the publication has to speak also to people like me. And, you know, we aspire to be a publication that everyone can, can flip through the pages and see themselves in it. Um, and not to, to save you for last, Dr. Ravi, but Dr. Ravi, I've been watching Dr. Ravi on ID Discoveries for a while, and I am a, a criminal um, show addict. My husband and I watched them avidly, so it was a very pleasant surprise when we finally started working together at Bella and has just been such a huge supporter of what we do, and um, she is a kick-ass uh, doctor of human behavior, which is why she's here to also kind of cement and explain a little bit from a psychological standpoint, you know, what this all means and why we are all now running like headless turkeys about a topic that we know has existed in this country for so long. So let's get let's get right to it um obviously i send you guys some guidelines we're going to have a respectful dialogue we're going to recognize and affirm each other's experiences um but i really want because here's here at the end of the day if we don't speak from um truth uh then we're being of disservice to our audience um and so i would like for all of you and i know that you will which is why we've put together this really amazing group of people for everyone to discuss um this topic to get today let's start right in and delve into the first question can you talk about a time that you navigated tricky dynamics around race or other identities in your work what did you do and I would like for each of you to speak from your point of view regarding your industry. Danita, if you would like to start. Okay. Um, well, I think one of the first times I really experienced racism in my industry was when I first started to model. And that was, I'm not going to tell my age eons ago, but in any event, <laughs> um, when I would go to the agencies in New York, oftentimes if a dark-skinned black girl was the trend, you would always hear that, okay, we have our black girl mm. in the agency. Um, we're not really, they don't really book light-skinned girls unless you have certain types. So there was always that one black girl and then it changed a little bit. You got the light and the dark-skinned girl. But I heard that often. And sometimes you would go to castings, like agents would try to book your jobs. You would go to castings and the director of the casting would say, hey, we're not booking any black girls. So that was a harsh reality. Um, it's changed a little bit, but it was, it was just a, it was just a norm, which was not acceptable. But that's just what you would hear often. So, you know, it's it. The standards of beauty have changed, but I feel that um, through what we see on TV and in magazines, the standard of beauty is not um, as diverse as the world is. You know, so I just had to toughen up get some tough skin and accept and learn how to embrace what I have, you know, embrace my features, my complexion, my looks and be okay with that. So. It hurt though. I did cry a lot of times. Uh, yeah, for but, sure. Yeah, Dr. Like, Robbie, can, can you chi chime in if there's any, uh, you know, dynamics around race that you had to kind of work through in your own field? Well, when I was, First, starting my training at the University of Pennsylvania, I, I grew up as the only Jew in a non-Jewish town. So we were, I don't remember what the course was, it was so many years ago, but I had this black professor and I had this conversation with her. We had to write about race and, and trying to understand it in a more kind of dynamic way. And I said to her, realize I had a lot to learn. 
I said to her, I said, oh, I kind of, I get it because I'm Jewish and I have experienced anti-Semitism. So I get that experience. And she goes, listen, there are Jews. So like, you got to rethink it. And it was a brilliant way of saying, you really need to expand the way you are looking at the world. And it was such a life-changing moment when you realize how much you don't know mm. and how much you need to learn and to be open to that. And the way she did it was so beautiful and inspiring that I've never forgotten that powerful moment. Listen, I'm not there yet. We're all always learning. But it was a wonderful start to me broadening my perspective. Awesome. Thank I you love for that. that. Lucky. Yeah. Lucky yeah, okay. for you? Yeah. I mean, I love that honesty, Dr. Bobby, because um, especially acknowledging that you, you had to kind of learn and brush up something, but also acknowledging that you're st still not fully there, which is so important <laughs> because we have a lot of fakers who they'll put up a black square, you know, they'll come to <laughs> their friend and go right back to the boardroom and talk mess about those same people that they're pretending to love. So thank you right. for acknowledging that part. Um, but me, myself, I'm going to explain a situation where um, not only was this a, a tragedy what happened to me, but number two, I also handled the situation wrong. Um, and I could have done something in that moment, but I just didn't know how. And what happened was when I was working with a, a former colleague, um, we had an event that we had to do together. And, um, you know, she couldn't get anyone to the event, she, a white female friend of mine, and nobody would show up to her an event. So two days before the event happens, at happened to be Red Door Spa, she asked me, hey, can you please invite people? You know, the client needs these bodies to show up. So I did it. I reached out. Um, she had a guest list of two people showing up. By the time I was done in 24 hours, we had almost 200 people showing up to the event. Okay. Now, granted, I'm a black man. I have a variety <laughs> of friends. Friend. So the event was a huge success. So when we got to the meeting the next day after the client was happy, satisfied, and I sat with her and we were, we're cutting the checks, she said, well, thank you for what you've done. I appreciate it. But she said, next time, don't BET me so much. <laughs> and, yeah, I see the... I see the oh. So when I, 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 I grabbed the paper and my blood immediately boiled because I knew what she meant as a white woman saying, don't BET me. Yet these are the same people who showed up to your event, made it a huge success. Not only did they make it a success, they purchased product and mm. you were able to, like your clients sold out of everything. Right. So the mm. reason I said I handled the situation wrong was because I was in such shock that somebody who was a colleague of mine and somebody who is known in the industry for helping so many black careers wow. could say that after building a platform on those careers, but now it's a problem that they are the most people at your events. Mm -hmm. And you actually me a black man to now not let these people in. And you know, I, we need more, what she said was we need more white people to make this classy. Right. And oh my God, I love it. <laughs> it, it broke me and it, it, it gave me a harsh reality that I already knew, but it also yeah. let me know how many times I had been in that room, been the mm -hmm. only black voice and didn't use my voice. Mm -hmm. And I realized yeah. that I was also part of the problem. You know what Ooh, I mean? Yeah. Because when we don't hold people accountable and we don't address them on the spot, we're co-signing and say, ha, 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 
you know, we're like the guy from Django, you know, mm -hmm. and excuse me for my verbiage, who's that nigga on that man? You yeah. know, that's the kind of attitude we're bringing towards the situation. So hindsight being 2020, I did approach her months later about the situation, which was far gone too late at the time. But it also caused our relationship to end and we had to separate companies, which led me to where I am now, which I'm in a much better place. But again, like I said, wow. that's one of the biggest lessons I learned because I learned that, yes, certain people are the problem, but I also learned that I could be the problem too, just by not doing the right thing. Yeah. 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 And I appreciate you saying that because I'm going to add something to what you said when yeah. we, when we finish going around. Um, Stella. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to build on what Lucky just mentioned because I, there is an ownership piece um, to our identities that um, I think about this often at work. I don't hesitate to address things that are wrong when it comes to how we're either servicing our children or using language to talk about them. Um, and over time, being very outspoken gives you a la labels that you never mm -hmm. asked for. Yeah. Like, you're the fierce Latina that is always picking up, or, you know, oh, here comes our sassy leader, mm -hmm. um, ready to address some things. And these are labels that I, first of all, never used them on myself. Um, don't think I gave anybody permission to use those words, but my silencing will be given permission mm. for, for people to refer to me in those ways. So in this topic of identity and how I'm addressing, I talk about language and how language weighs so heavily in everything that we do, how we present ourselves, how we speak, and words like sassy latina or here is a, you know or a fiery leader uh speaking out are terms that doesn't really elevate a person that it actually concentrates our energy in the wrong thing what about thinking about the content of those things versus are we speaking out or not again but i do think i i do try to be very mindful that i own that process in making sure that i'm addressing when those labels do come up um, yeah. 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 I love that. Ebony. Um, speaking on what Lucky and um, Stella said, so basically um, I had a situation with Ulta Beauty where I went to get my makeup done while I was, I went to, I'm from Houston. I live in Houston. My husband's from Jersey. So I go to a small town in Jersey called Homedale and like knowing I knew it wasn't the place to go get your makeup done, but my mother-in-law was throwing me a baby shower. So I got my makeup done. While I was sitting there, the makeup artist, she's this Italian lady, and she does some stuff to my face, and then she's like, this is it. And, like, right now, I'm beat to the God compared to <laughs> what she did, right? <laughs> so I was like, no, this is not it. And she was like, yes, this is all we have for you. We, you, we don't have makeup mm. for your skin color. You're too dark. And this is something I've heard always throughout my life, but I hadn't heard it in a while. And then, so, you know, I'm from Houston, so I just, you know, just things change. Well, I remember being in the situation, and as it was happening, I was so upset. But I knew, I looked around, and I'm in a store where there's no one who looks like me. And there, I think there's one biracial uh, manager there. And I'm like, if I go off on this lady, 
I'm going to be, I always think back to that Oprah Winfrey part of Color Purple. When like, she went off on that white man and she ended up in, in jail, I'm like, that's what I'm going to look like. First off, I'm big as all these doors with this baby. I'm eight months pregnant. I'm out here. So I was like, I can't do that. And I remember my mom called me while I was there and I was like, you won't believe this. And she was like, you know, you need to calm down. So I calmed down and I ended up doing my own makeup that day. And I, and I paid. So um, <laughs> I had the baby shower, and when I went home, I decided to use my voice on Twitter. And I started hitting up Ulta, and then, you know, it just went viral. Mm -hmm. But when I think about that, I, I think about it constantly, because now, um, so I'm a micro-influencer for Ulta, and I've had a lot of opportunities come from this. And, you know, um, I had to be very strategic in how I use my voice, because mm -hmm. afraid of being labeled as an angry black woman. And so, you know, it even took me like, even which you had every family, right to be, you had every right, right to be and angry. I still, <laughs> and I still paid them. Yeah. And, um, yeah. You know, I, even at my baby shower, no one even knew what happened because I was so calm and I just put it in the back of my mind. And so often as a black woman or a black person, I feel like we are forced to um, compartmentalize our anger, our upset, our hurt. And right. then you know, things explode like we're seeing right now. And everyone's like, whoa, where did this come from? I can't believe this is happening. I'm like, what are you talking about? Right. It's yeah. been here. So yeah. that's just my experience. But I do think that the way I handled the situation, um, I didn't go off in the store, but I used my voice strategically. It really helped me. And um, unfortunately, it even helped how they saw me, how they viewed me. Because they didn't think, because, you know, they tried to throw, like, a, a gift card here, a gift card there. And I was like, no, like, we got to do better. You guys have to do better on your end. And they you held and them I accountable. Really believe that they, it, it allowed for them to actually hear me and see, and see me. And so that's just, like, something, like, I'm always constantly thinking about is how am I reacting to a situation based off Thank of. Thank you. Yeah. Labor. Thank you for sharing yeah. that. Teresa and then Vivian. Well, I, first of all, thank you guys so much for having me. I feel like, you know, I kind of got in because I'm um, Vanessa's cousin. Because you know your bios, and then it's like, oh, and that one teacher lady. <laughs> <laughs> thank you guys so much for allowing me to be here. And actually, um, my story about confronting racism, I, I find that I have, um, I've been fortunate in my life to be insulated in a lot of ways. But then when you leave the insulation, you come into the real, the big real world, then that's when things hit you. I was insulated as a kid in the community that I grew up in was predominantly black. And for the first five years of my education, I was surrounded by black people, black teachers, black culture. And then my parents sent me to private school and that all changed. The same thing was true of my career. I started my career in Gary, Indiana, um, where I was teaching in a community that is predominantly people who look like me. and same value, same everything. And I left there and went to a private institution in Indianapolis, Indiana. And that is where professionally I first had to confront racism as the part of the diversity initiative for this small independent school in Indianapolis. It is elite. Um, it was founded in 1922. Black teacher that they had ever hired in 1996. Wow. So it was their 75th anniversary and I guess it was time. So, um, so I, um, I, now they, ironically, they did have a black administrator who was retired from the Indianapolis public schools. Um, very nice lady. But so it was she and I. And um, they have all these traditions, which you will find at these very insulated PWIs often. There are traditions 
that have gone unseen by a variety of eyes because they are traditions in this, in this very small insulated community. And now it's not that they hadn't had black kids to go through there, but they'd have black kids to go through there whose parents navigated the world maybe in a different way. I mean, there were people, this school, Larry Bird's son went there. Isaiah Thomas's son actually didn't get in. He ended up going to another school. So it's, it, it's you know, these are, this is where the elite, it was founded by Eli Lilly's grandfather. I don't know. Anyway, so I'm there and I'm watching one of their traditions. And one of them was they had these eighth grade musicals every year and they called it Showboat. And I didn't understand why they called it Showboat. I'm new. I'm like, okay. So it turns out that at intermission of this thing, they do what's called the showboat, and they sing the, the song Showboat from the musical Showboat, where if you listen to it, and they, they have this whole thing that they do, but if you listen to it, there are a couple things that happen. One of the things that happen is the, the, the wording talks about um, old Black Joe playing Dixieland on his old banjo, mm -hmm. and they changed the wording to old man Joe playing Dixieland on his old banjo, but... There's that. And then um, there's a part in the course where Mammy and Pappy are feeling happy, shuff, shuff, shuffling along. Oh, my gosh. Now, this is 1996. I am the black voice of black people everywhere for this school, mm -hmm. right? I am the representative, mm -hmm. the duly, you know, christened representative for black the, people the everywhere. The poster child. You are I the am. poster child. I am representing the entire race. Okay. <laughs> Because that is who I am. That's who they have chosen. And, you know, when you're by yourself and you see that, you have this experience of this can't be real. Right, real. Or am I registering this right? Or am right. I? So, you know, and, and often a lot of you guys' instance were like one-time instance where you're with these people and then you leave and you go home and it's like, dang, I should have said something. Well, okay, so I'm listening and I'm watching this happen and I'm like, hmm, and I felt something. And I left the theater and I continued to feel something. And I went home and I came back and I still felt something. And I was like, okay. Now at this time, I am probably 26, 26 years old. So I'm young in my career. I'm new to this school. And I don't really, I'm not sure of my voice yet. Um, just because I haven't been confronted with a lot as a professional yet. So I, I was, I was, confused and I didn't have a lot of people who you know these are people who have been here forever whose kids have gone to this school that I'm even working with so their kids participated in this they've, they've been there for 20 years 10 years they've watched this all happen so for me to speak up about it I was like I'm these what's gonna happen and I remember being sick to my stomach for like a day and finally I went to um, the head of the school and I was like look this is what I'm seeing and this is how I'm feeling about it. And I explained the context behind minstrelsy and, you know, where, where the song was coming from and what the references were. And there was a whole nother part of this too, where there's a point at which the eighth grade girls do the can can and then they turn around and they put their asses in the air and they spell out something on their asses as well. And so I was also speaking to the, the kind of objectification of teenage girls um, doing a dance that, oftentimes in Paris at that time period was an advertisement um, for women who were looking for a specific kind of work. Um, yeah. So yeah. trying, and so I'm explaining all of this and this is there. Definitely not, not element, not school material, but okay. <laughs> right? These yeah. are all things that they have held as their traditions, their longstanding traditions in this school. They've been doing this for 74 years. This is the 75th performance. 
And I'm like, excuse me. Harsh. So it was difficult and it was scary and yeah. um, it was divisive and there were tears and arguments and shouting and I'm 26 and new. And I'm just like, what is happening? But we worked through it and um, in the end it was, they abolished it actually after that year, thankfully. Um, they don't do that anymore. They changed the, the context of everything. They do still do a musical, but it makes more sense. And But it was Amazing. it was quite the challenge. So. I can imagine. Yeah, thank you for sharing yeah. that. Vivian? Yeah. Um, I, um, I, I, I'm proud of the fact that in my bio, you hear about my like English and women's studies degree because I feel like English taught me history through literature. And then when I took women's studies, I was like really empowered to change the future. And I was like, definitely, I think I was a feminist before, like I knew what that was. Um, yeah. and I ran for office in school and I was the only girl that ran for office. And, um, but when I arrived in college and studies degree and read um, Peggy McIntosh's, um, you know, the invisible knapsack, right, of white privilege. Mm -hmm. Holy shit. Like, <laughs> you can curse on this podcast. Go for it, Vivian. It's okay. <laughs> um, no, but it was just, that was my, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that it was 17 or 18 when I was like, oh, like, this is what this is. Like, I, and now, now that I know it, I have to have the accountability that goes with that, right? Um, so that really changed like my whole trajectory. And I was that annoying girl in every class that was like, let me just add and let me just add in all my other classes. And I think everyone rolled their eyes when they saw that I was in their class. But um, fast forward to where I am now and the industry that I'm in, it is never it is never lost on me that I am a white woman running an organization that is focused on empowering predominantly girls of color. Mm -hmm. So it is something that I think about nearly all the time. I'll say nearly all the time. Um, and making sure that, um, you know, one thing that you hear probably more now than, but over the past few years is that nonprofits are still 80% run by white people, right? So, and that increases to like 90% or 92% when you look at like the largest nonprofits. You have this huge like wealth gap. And then how does that impact philanthropy and where does the money go? Um, and I definitely see the privilege that I have that I come into this space and the responsibility that comes with it. Um, and sometimes I'm torn about it. Um, and do I pass the mic and do I set this institution mm. for the next leader, right? Um, but, but I try to navigate with authenticity and, and an open ear and um, I work at it every day and I try to walk the walk. Thank you. And that's why you're a part of this conversation because I love you. I love everything that you uh, do and work for. And we've had we've had this conversation before. Um, but I also, just like Lucky said in the beginning, you know, it's uh, we need more white people to be a part of the conversation in order for this to actually uh, change. Um, Jen, you, <laughs> um, your turn. You know, I think, uh, and Danita kind of sparked this in me as she was talking um 
I mean, you know, personally, obviously I've, I, I've seen it. I can't say I've experienced it firsthand or like some of you have, um, but growing up, I dealt with my own issues. Um, and then later in life, you know, I saw it in other ways when I started modeling or doing pageants or, you know, television hosting. Um, and it always took me by surprise when, you know, I would hear things like, well, you know, we have to have a black girl this year or it has to be a, a, a black girl to win for this state or, well, we got to switch out the host because we need a person of color. Or, and it's just, you don't, you don't know how it feels personally because no one's saying to me like, you can't do it because you're white. And I couldn't mm -hmm. imagine what they would feel. And at the same token, you know, you want to, you want to compete against the best regardless of what color they are. And you want them to, to be there because they earned it and not because of the color of their skin. And I just, I couldn't imagine what so many girls and women and other people in all these different industries, and you see it so much in entertainment and in beauty, like, you know, Danita said, and um, Ebony said, and it's just, it's hard to see. And it's, I, I personally couldn't imagine it, but I hated seeing it. And I hated being a part of that. You know, I, and so many amazing hosts and beauty pageant winners and, and models and, you know, are there and they should be there based on their merit and not based on the color of their skin. Um, so I just thought when she said that, it kind of sparked that in my head personally, some of the things I've seen. Wow. So for me, um, as a seven or eight year old Dominican girl newly moved to Dayton, Ohio, um, because for Latin American people, uh, at least I, I can only speak for Dominicans, you know, there is there are a ton of race issues within our own culture like that's just i mean just like we're, we have here uh however you know i grew up in a very diverse looking family i mean my mom looks irish my mom had red hair you know dyed her head her head her hair red but had green eyes and was white and my father was what we refer to as a mulatto, which is a combination of uh, a, an African-American person and a European person, and they come together, have a child, and they have, you know, somebody who looks like me. So um, that was my dad. So when I moved, you know, my parents divorced, we moved to uh, Ohio. Uh, my mom married uh, Teresa's uncle, and um, we were walking, my brothers had just come also, because my um, when my parents divorced, like I, I went to the U.S. first, and about five or six months later, my brothers joined. And I was so excited because finally they were there and we were getting ready to start school, all three of us together. We were like finally reunited. You know, I was reunited with my brothers and I was walking into Salem Mall. I'm sure you went there <laughs> many a times. I was walking into Salem Mall and it was my mom and my two brothers and myself. We were walking into, um, my brother uses glasses. We were walking into um, Optical Solutions or Optical, whatever the store was called. Um, and all of a sudden I hear, I hear a man call out to my mother, excuse me, ma'am. And we all turned because we were like literally walking in and he stopped my mom and said, excuse me, ma'am. And my, my mom said, yes, how can I help you? And he says, are those your children? And she's like, yes, um, yes. Um, and literally the words out of his mouth, out of his mouth were, you're ruining our race. What are you doing? And at that moment, at eight years old is when I, and I remember stopping my mom and asking her, I said, what did he just say? And she, she said, you know when you're like in shock? And she was shockingly repeating, she, he just said that I'm ruining the race. 
And I had never thought about race or my skin color until that moment, until that moment. And I think, you know, what I would hope by the end of this conversation is the psychological and emotional impact that a comment like that can have for a person for the rest of their entire life is um, I think why I'm so um, rooted in the efforts of education with this, because it taught me uh, in that moment that I was different. And it was taught to me, I think, in the most violent way, because I didn't know who this person was. I, you know, just this random person that stopped us and we were shopping. And all of a sudden, like our world came tumbling down. Um, I do have to say that, um, you know, what I did about it in that sense, my mom, I believe several weeks later, sat us all down to watch The Color Purple. And that was my introduction to Oprah. That was my introduction to uh, The Color Purple and all of its glory. Um, but it actually empowered me to go into my private Catholic all-white school that when someone called me out on my color, because I got called taco burrito and i would just turn around do you even know that tacos are not even from the dominican republic i'm from the dominican <laughs> republic go learn go learn your countries you know like that was my defense in third fourth grade right i didn't know any better these are the words that i use but um and i remember my brother getting into a fight um because he was called a dominican burrito and it was kind of like you know but he and he reacted uh, you know physically to it because we were we were tired of it right we were tired of it then imagine so now you learn to grow a very thick skin um and i think that that's what has allowed me to get to where i am in this industry because i'm now in the fashion beauty entertainment industry where i really feel that you know my merits have gotten me here um however my merits have not stopped me from being um, like carted at the airport when I'm with my children and asked if those are my children because they don't look like me. I still, you know, I remember having to do that for the first five years of their lives. Uh, yeah, sir, they are mine. Here's the <laughs> birth certificate, you know. Here's so, the stretch um, marks. <laughs> I'm sorry? <laughs> I, uh, the stretch marks and the yes, and, and, I, and, and I still got the baby children. fat. <laughs> Okay. And I still got the baby fat, so yeah. No, um, so all this to say that, you know, um, to, to really showcase that this is something that has been cemented and rooted for a very long time. And I think that the, um, I think, you know, the resentment to a certain degree, I know that I've learned to grow from those experiences and not carry them with me. But um, I think that this moment in history that we're all living in is, kind of like when you've had enough and you've been seeing this for a very long time and now you feel empowered enough to speak up and you know add your voice to the conversation so um the second question that we have for you guys today is how often do you think about your right your race or your ethnicity how often do you think about that lucky go ahead <laughs> I had to put the church finger up oh. <laughs> every damn day um, and I'm going to, I don't remember the comedian that said it, but they said, if you want to know what the life of a black person is like, just watch how a squirrel moves through life. A squirrel is constantly nervous, chasing a nut, looking around to see what's coming next because they're unaware of their surroundings, but they're trying to be, and they don't know what move they're going to make that's going to get them killed next. And that's how we live. Um, I was talking to a friend earlier today. I said, 
you don't realize what it is to walk the streets. I said, because first of all, I chose a battle for myself, which is the way I dress um, with purpose. I choose to dress this way because I feel a CEO or owner of a company should not have to wear a suit or shouldn't be, you know, a suit should not be what defines a person, nor should my skin. And we have these CEOs such as, you know, Bill Gates or whoever else, they walk around with t-shirts and the the cheapest sneakers and they can do that and be successful and still be considered great people. Um, I have to walk down the street. I have to think about the distance I am between myself and the white person in front of me. Because am I offending them by being too close? Or do they think I'm going to rob them? Let me take my hoodie down. Let me walk a little straighter. These are things that, you know, it's, it's a constant balancing act of how can I just be me, but still be presentable to people so nobody thinks I'm trying to harm them. I've had guns pulled out on me. I've, I'm always the suspect. I'm always the random search. Wow. And this is with a, this is with a suit or no suit. You know what I mean. No matter how I look, this has happened to me. Um, I, I was in the car with a white friend of mine driving from. I went to SUNY Farmingdale, Long Island, and we were driving to Seven Eleven at the time. The cops pull us over, go to his window, say, "Hey, are you okay? Is he bothering you?" And he's like, "He's like, sir, I'm me and my friend are driving to the store." He's like, "Yeah, but we're gonna get him out." They got me out. They searched me completely. And was asking me, you know, do I have coke for, you know, am I selling coke to somebody? I was like, what are you talking about? Like, you know, I've never even seen that. And or walking into parties where I'm the only black person, and people walk up to me like, you got that? Right. And I'm like, got what? I was like, got a degree? Yes, I got that. you asked me? So it's it's a constant overthinking our actions. Um overthinking who we can trust you know what i mean because we want to be honest we want to share so much with people but we can't because we don't know who's going to turn those things against us and use it against us as as a weapon um living as a black person and then not only that there's levels to being black Mm -hmm. i mean by that is the lighter the shade the more you can sneak into doorways and get away and you can be the ears for our community and hear things that you know that um, you wouldn't hear most of the time. I've always been considered the safe black guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how I look, they go, we love you around Lucky because you're so eloquent, you speak well. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what does that even mean? Yeah, yeah you're, you're articulate. articulate. Yeah, you're articulate. <laughs> you know, um, I've, I've heard you don't speak You're God. so well-spoken. You're so well-spoken. <laughs> exactly. I was like, you know, black people read too. You know, we... <laughs> And, and the way we speak is just an, ex- an extended expression of who we are. Yeah. We are talented enough to go in and out. I can, I can go hang on the corner with a drug dealer if I feel like it, and I can go in a boardroom and close a deal the same way. Mm-hmm. And this is a talent we have. But I'm not going to keep going on that because I can go on forever about this. <laughs> Anybody else that wants to jump into that yeah. uh, question? Just how much do you... sisters here? I'm sure mm-hmm. they know. Well, you know, I think the only thing worse than having it happen to you is to know that you have four black sons and that they are now figure my 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 third son is just turned he turned 18 a week ago. And literally at the days after the world came crashing down again. You know, my, one of my friends referred to it today as the pandemic within within the pandemic. But when my when 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 you have four sons and you know that is the experience they're going to live and you know how often do you think about it like lucky said every day and 
I mean, to the point of when do I leave home? So especially in Indiana, there are certain places in Indiana, I know I shouldn't be after the sun goes down. Um, and that's not necessarily out in the country. There are certain areas in where I just know, I, I know this, I'm not supposed to be here. And it's even scarier, like I say, when you have, when you have sons that you know have to learn to navigate that and you've done your best to raise them in a way where, you know, because what do you do with your children? You protect them, you raise them, you whatever. But then you have to balance that with having to talk, which I know we've all talked about. And how do you behave when you are stopped? And I have one who I, I had to, one day I went off on him. I said, look, you got too much mouth. You don't listen. You want to be heard. You need to learn how to just sit there and shut up because I cannot look down on you in a casket. And if you say that to the wrong person, they will take you out. And then something will happen to me. I'll either die or go to jail. So I can't. And it's just, it's when, when it's, it's hard when it's you. And I can't imagine what that must be like to navigate the world like that. But when it's your children and you know, they're going through it. My older sons will be 30. Um, 30. In a few. Yes, I know. I, I'm still struggling with saying that out loud. It's very difficult. Every so often, like I have to hold on to something when I say it. Like this is the first time I said it and didn't grab onto something to keep myself from falling over. They'll be 30 um, in July. And so they, you know, have, have been through the gamut. They've been arrested. They've, they've, they've had guns drawn on them. They've, all the things have happened. You know, they've, they've been accused. They've been this, they've been that. All of the things, and so I know it's coming from my son. So that's the only thing I could think of that would that makes it even. Ugh, I don't know. It's not just it happens to you, but yeah. knowing that your children will have to negotiate that world. Yeah. Um, as a, as I, a, go ahead, go ahead. Um, so I'm a new mom. I have a little boy. He's the cutest. Um, I he totally is. I'll I'll show y'all later. But so for me, so I have I'm dark skinned. My father's from Ghana. My mom's African American. I live in Texas. So um, I always was taught, you know, you need to don't walk out of store without a receipt, you know, because you need to always be able to prove that you bought something. And now having a son, I'm just like preparing myself to teach him these little mini life lessons inside life lessons. But one thing I found interesting when it comes to like a lot of my white friends is so last week one of my girlfriends I've had since sixth grade she called me and she uh, she actually sent me a Starbucks gift card it was ten dollars and I was like oh she must know how hard it is being a new mom but she she was like no I didn't realize I know it's you're you're struggling because you're raising a black son and you know with all that's going on I was like you know Heather honestly I've seen this happen a lot. I've almost become desensitized to what's going on. I see these videos so often. Mm -hmm. And she said to me, that's really stuck with me. She said, I never, I saw the videos too, but I never really realized that those black men were once black boys until I met your son. And I was like, dang, like, <laughs> you know, so it's like, it really has really been something that's been on my, on my heart thinking like, you know, I'm, ra I'm raising myself, I'm constantly, you know, aware of who I am, what I look like, and what my mm -hmm. son, who my son is to other people. And, you know, it's not even something that a lot of people have to even deal with and even recognize. It's, it's, it is, and you know, what can you say? Can you be upset with her for that? Or I was really thankful for her honesty and it made me realize like how people unconsciously view things. 
So as a, a therapist, you know, I'm constantly aware of conscious ideas and unconscious ideas. And my son, you know, this is in the news. So it's my responsibility and my pleasure to talk about these issues, uh, raise awareness. My son, after he saw an interview with Nisi Meech, she's a Nisi, she's a comedian. Yeah. Yeah. And she was very upset that she really felt afraid for her son, her black son, and was talking about the fear that she had. And my son came out to me and he was so confused. And he said, I don't understand. He's like, I don't understand. I don't understand why she's afraid for her son. And, and, and he goes, do you know what that means? And my son's in college. And I said, I, I said, if I were raising a black child, I would have to raise him very differently than I'm raising you. I said, I would have to worry more. So I see what she's saying. And it was hopefully a moment where he could stop, pause and think. Mm -hmm. That if my mother is telling me she would have to raise me differently, to think about different, the world differently, how to protect themselves differently, then that means something. Um, and as a, I mean, as a therapist, I'm li listening to everything you're talking about. I'm fortunate that I get a front row seat and I have, you know, black patients and white patients. And I don't know why this story came up because I usually don't talk about myself in therapy, but I, for whatever reason, anyone who knows me knows I'm set, obsessed with jewelry and I was in this jewelry store and I asked this woman to look at several things and, and. She must have been nervous about her job and she couldn't find something that I gave back to her. And she kind of was looking at me like I took it. And I was thinking, God, I'm so dizzy. Did I accidentally put it in my pocket? Did I do something? You know, why would she think that of me? And I was discussing this with a patient of mine who was black. She, maybe it was triggered by something she said. And she goes, the difference between you and me, Robbie, is that I go in assuming they think I'm going to take something. I would have never been shocked. And I had this moment. It was so powerful. I was like, wow. You know, it, it just makes you stop and think what you're not thinking about, what you're not expecting. Mm -hmm. And this is where I get to learn from my patients. Wow. That's oh, powerful. That's it was was a big, very powerful. Big, it was yeah. a big moment. Anita, yeah. I just had uh, not to answer the question, but I just wanted to tell you guys a personal experience of mine and how I internalized racism and thinking about children for so long. I didn't want to have kids because I didn't want to grow up them to grow up in this world. And I remember um, talking to my family this week, and they were like, "You can't view it that way." But I'm like, I don't know if I can bear. Like, if this doesn't get better, why would I want to be, bring children into this world? And that's the conversation I've had with a lot of friends that are of color, you know? That was just a, something how it impacted me. And that's sad, you know? But it is very sad to even have to, um, yeah, it is actually heartbreaking to come to kind of that, you know, conclusion that because you are going to have, you know, a black child that you would rather just not. <laughs> you know, subject yourself to the suffering of what that actually may look like for you. That's actually, that's heartbreaking. And I hope that you uh, reconsider 
because if there if there's anything that um, I'm a, I'm a, I am a hopeless optimist, and I do feel like we are in a moment in time where we are just coming um, coming to terms with the realities. And one of the things that um, uh, you, Vivian, and you, Robbie, have both pointed out that I just want to make clear because I and I feel this way. I feel like you know our white friends are um, first of all. I don't, I, I don't, I personally don't need you to apologize for what has happened. I, 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 that's, that's my, um, it's not your direct fault. Like you didn't have anything to do. You were, you born, you were born into this situation. However, I do need you to listen and take action and not be concerned with the discomfort that your skin color is going to bring because here's the reality and maybe the different shades of blackness that you're seeing here you know we've all had it is the discomfort we've all lived with it i've lived with it for, with 40 you know from the moment that i was seven when i realized that my skin was a different color i've lived with that discomfort my entire life knowing that i would carry myself differently every which way so now for you and I don't mean just you, Robbie and Vivian, you know, white people in general, this is going to be very uncomfortable for everybody if we're going to really finally have, you know, honest conversations about systematic racism because it's been here. It's been here. And, um, you know, we can make the past two weeks about uh, a democratic, a democratic Republican. We can make it about whatever. The reality is that that is not the core of the issue. The core of the issue is the hurt, the pain that has been inflicted on, you know, African American people, uh, Latin Hispanic people, um, Jewish people, uh, LGBTQ members. You know, members of the LGBTQ community. Also, uh, there's just injustices of all different kinds, and how unfortunate that a black man had to die for us to have these conversations. That's where I am at. Yes, Lucky, I see you with your church finger up. Go ahead. <laughs> Go Lucky. <laughs> no, but I, and I appreciate just your, your statement and the sentiment behind it, um, but I'm letting y'all know I'm here for the apology. Um, <laughs> um, That's cool, <laughs> totally cool. Let me explain why. Because mm -hmm. if I can apologize to my own community for my part in it, everybody needs to apologize for their part in it because we all right. need to be held accountable. And I'm not throwing anything at you, like, because I mean- No, I'm, no, no, I'm, but what I want to, I, I just, here's, here's my stance. And that's why I loved how you opened the statement because when you opened up this whole talk, that what you said is exactly what needed to be said. The honesty of saying we're still working on it, we're trying to get- 100%. Myself, I have a lot of work to do because there's times where I'm very, you know, Martin Luther King, but I'm mostly Malcolm X, you know what I mean? <laughs> I'll kick in the door, um, you know, but there's there's a certain balance that has to come with that. So, you know, like I said, I agree, but I'm definitely here for the apology. So Which I, I, yeah, go ahead, Ebony. Uh, so all week I've gotten like at least five different text messages from an old neighbor, uh, some white girlfriends, yeah. and they're all just like, I'm here for you. And, you know, and they, for me, it's almost like, I was talking to my husband about this, I appreciate it, but then I kind of feel like it could be forced. 
because yeah. they're forced to see it. But that's, now and that's, where I'm, that's what that's what I'm Yo. trying to get at, because I don't I don't want any of the people who generally want to be of help and support to feel like now they're being driven to this because if they don't say something they're going to seem as wrong because they haven't said something so i like like you ebony i appreciate you know in a lot of ways and listen as a latina woman i've been like yeah but you're like not black enough to be able to have this conversation and i'm like excuse me let me tell you something right now like it does not work i've always identified as a woman of color i i have um because in dominican republic i've always been referred to as a morena if you speak Spanish, morena directly translated means black girl. Like that's what it is. So I grew up with that. Like it never faced me until that first encounter and then having to kind of dissipate and diffuse moments where people were trying to make my skin or my culture a weapon. And I just flipped it and turned it around. I, I would always turn it back into go educate yourself. You need to read more. Uh, but it's not without, it doesn't go without saying that to this day, people send me tequila for Christmas as if that's supposed to be. <laughs> and I, and I'll sit there and I'll sit there and I'm like, oh, is, is this happening? It is yeah. 2019 and somebody just sent me tequila. Like I'll, okay. I'll take it. Thank you. Right. But I'm not Mexican. Like I'm not. <laughs> I got a but, 40 ounce wrapped under a Christmas tree one. No, you did not. Stop it. What? I'm Stop sorry? it. I call bullshit. Stop it. Oh, 45. Stop it. Stop. Newspaper under the Christmas tree. Stop it right now. Oh my now. God, that's hysterical. Stop it right now. Dang it. <laughs> but you know, honestly, I would rather them. I don't need an apology. I would rather you stand up for when you see it happen and justice happen because right. we all see it. You're in the office right. and something happens. And right. I'd rather you use your voice then. I, Yes. One hundred percent. That's a that's exactly they send me a long text message. I agree. It's exactly. a pandemic. A bunch of people sitting at home unemployed for people to see what we've seen. Right. You're right. In forever. Right. Yeah. And so for me it's almost like, you know, I just need you to be there with mm -hmm. through be as there all of this is happening. Use your voice. Correct. Right. Robbie, you, you were gonna say something and then video. Not for the no, next I really wanted to ask Lucky, um, you know that you were saying you wanted an apology and and what would that look like to you what would a meaningful apology look like and mm. so that's in my question so go ahead <laughs> literally elaborated on it before i could even say it but an apology to me is action and mm. and, and yeah. action meaning when you're in the boardroom you're talking to these people you're making decisions that can affect that community in a positive way when you go home and you're talking to your kids, you're telling your kids how they can do better, how you did wrong, how you can do better. Um, when you're with that <laughs> family barbecue yeah. and y'all right. are making those little quick jokes that we can't hear, mm -hmm. are you defending us there? So oh, I'm, I'm for the front lines, I'm for y'all marching, I'm for everybody doing all of that, but it's more about what we're doing in private that is killing us in these streets because <laughs> The people running these police departments who I see, you know, who kneel in the in one day with us and the next day arrest peaceful protesters, right. that is a problem. It's a contradiction. So instead of the social media post versus the reality. Exactly. So exactly. we need we need that backing in real life, you know what I mean? When I yeah. can hear you and when I can hear you. Right. Got it. I, I, also, 
I keep thinking about the decentering of whiteness. You know, when there are all these text messages that people are sending to our black friends right now, asking how they're doing. One question that I keep thinking is, are you doing this because you want to know how they're doing and how they're holding up and what can you do for you? Or are you doing this to give a sense of calmness and peace to your mind right now because you're feeling guilty for right. feeling for being so blind or unaware or detached to what has been going on for hundreds of years this is not yeah. a this is not a, a two-week situation this has been going on for hundreds of years 450 years exactly so it's even yeah. when we march and we protest it's like who am i doing this for you know yeah. am i Am I posting my selfies, you know, on my IG account <laughs> to show that I was there? Or am I really doing because, listen, I realize I have a voice and I really have not used it. Um, so that's, that's where I've been navigating that's a lot about this centering whiteness and making sure we're amplifying Black voices right now and giving them the space that they have so much deserved. But it's not about me right now. I can do the work at home in my quiet without having to post every single book that i'm reading but if yeah. you want to read a book i can recommend you several but don't be taking selfies about you know i'm reading yeah. the book I, lo I love that i love that vivian you were you had your hand up there's just one thing that came up for me in all of this was i'm i feel pretty strong in my relationships with my girlfriends who are women and I felt like it was really easy for me to reach out to them in an authentic level. It was harder for me to reach out to the men in my life that I knew. And I was like, you know, I don't, I have this perception and now it's like a gender issue that I was like, wow, you're so strong. You can like handle it like emotionally more than my female friends could handle it. So that was like a dichotomy for me that I was like reaching out to my guy friends and being like, are you okay? Like, do you need support? Or like, it was just easier for me to reach out to my girlfriends than my guy friends. I'm, I'm actually, um, you know, I'm glad that you brought that up because I actually had um, a moment um, this weekend watching uh, the Khalif Bauer uh, documentary, which I had not. Um, and listen, I, it's not that it took, how, how long did it take me? I think there's just ways that you process. We all have ex different experiences in our lives and there's only so much of everything that is coming at us that you can process at once. So um, the, the one thing I kept telling my husband, because my husband was like, wow, this is actually super fascinating, like to hear the facts, to hear uh, everything that went into it. He's like, where, you know, where'd you, and I'm like, oh, we just did a post about what to do and resources and what to watch. My point is, as I was watching it, because I have boys, all I kept thinking was this poor mother. And I was like, my God, this poor kid, this right. poor kid, he was a child. He was a 16 year old kid. And um, to your point, Vivian, the men we assume are, you know, better equipped to, to handle this. But if my husband has shown me anything in the world, you know, uh, as a male, uh, is that how soft he really is inside and how much, um, you know, they need the support from not just other men, but from women to, you know, let them, you know, um, let, let, 
we need to let them know that we are there also um, to be of support. Because I also think to your point, uh, Lucky, of what you were saying before, how, you know, just the presence of a black man can trigger, you know, so many different emotions so differently and in, in, in people. Um, we really need to think about, uh, you know, how we are um, reacting, you know, in, in our everyday situations um you know with regards to that so 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 thank you for uh, all for sharing that um god there's so much to go through but <laughs> um here is uh, a point and question though because i think that um i think we can all um address this differently is you know we have now always witnessed uh someone being treated unfairly, you know, uh, because of their racial ethnicity. Uh, yes, uh, but I wanted to focus on injustice, but yes, we did wit all witness the George Floyd murder on, we, I mean, for me personally, and Jen and I have had this conversation multiple times, I can't get his face out of my mind. I just, because I, you know, I'm as much as I'm into investigation discovery shows, I know that that's TV and that's produced. It's one thing to see television in a movie. Another thing is to actually see it happen in real life. And when that man's breath left his body, I, I literally fell to my knees. I was making dinner and I hit the, and I said, oh my God, what did I just see? And I turned it off and, you know, went and curled up in a corner because I couldn't believe what I had just watched. We've watched it. Um, how have you responded? Um, how, does, how, how has this, you know, made you feel? And I'm asking this question for a very specific reason. I would love to hear anybody who wants to chime, chime in into that. Go ahead. Um, I don't, if, if you ladies don't mind, I'll just jump on it. You're the only man in the group. We are, we are ladies. Go ahead. Go I'm first. Still being polite, you know, I just want to make sure it's okay. <laughs> My, this was probably, this was one of the hardest things to swallow for me. Um, even though you've seen it so many times, because for the first time, this situation actually hit home. Um, as far as, because I'm in an interracial relationship at home and my wife is Asian. Um, we've been together 24 years and it's funny how you can go through something for years as, as a black man with a or black person with a struggle because I, I keep we keep saying man when we can't forget about our brianna taylors and the women who have been murdered you know because brianna we know what happened to her and we still are like you know what, what is happening here you know when are these cops going to be arrested you know um but it was just for the way i watched that affect my wife for the first time and saw her eyes and could see a piece of her break and for the first time her look at me to say damn i don't want you to go to the store you know what i mean um for the first time i walked in my own community and was actually nervous and that's never happened to me before you know in my own area where i where i call home um this this is this is a hard one man and it, it, it tore me up and I'm watching it tear the streets up. Oh, part of my alarm is going off. Um, I'm watching it tear the streets up. I'm watching it tear these confused kids up who don't know how to um, conceptualize it for themselves to, and don't know where to throw their anger. Mm -hmm. Because we're living in um, a time with a group of kids who just like, fuck it, we're not going to take it. And that's their attitude towards it. And I'm not mad at them for that. 
at all. Yeah. You know, like I said earlier, I don't condone the looting or anything that's been going on, but mm-hmm. I get it. I get it. We've been quiet for too long. Um, we've been marching for too long. We've been talking too, for too long. We've been complacent for too long. Right. Um, you know, so I'm going to let mm-hmm. the ladies please join in because I'm, I'm at a point right now where I'm literally about to cry because I, I see that replaying over and over and I just know that that could have been me. I remember the times where I was arrested for stupid things where a cop found a, a clip of a, of a weed thing that had nothing to do with me. It looked like it had been there since Indiana Jones discovered it. And he put it in the bag and I, I had to do a weekend in jail for something that had nothing to do with me. You know what I mean? Or being arrested in the train station by a, as I paid with my token and the white cop said, don't worry, I just need your name and I need you on this list because I was just part of their quota. Mm-hmm. Wow. You know what I mean? So it's, it's a harsh reality for us. And please chime in before I break down. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think also, uh, Robbie, from your perspective, I think I'd love to hear, um, you know, I guess how, how you've observed, you know, how people have reacted. Um, to, not that, because what I'm trying, um, I mean, I, I'd, like, I'd like for you to answer first, as you know, how people have reacted to the outrage and, and uh, I know that, you know, at, at the core, you know, m- most of us, I don't feel con- condone the violence and I don't think that we uh, want any of, um, you know, the additional uh, dismay that's happening, to, but we do agree with the protesting and we do feel that something needs to change. What can you yeah. say? to that. No, I, you know, listen, it's devastating to watch that tape. It's even more devastating to know that it has gone on for a long time. And just because it's captured on tape, we're now seeing how brutal and sadistic it really is. What I've seen is, you know, people are, are just devastated. I don't think they really have the words to describe. I think that there's a mixture of guilt and not knowing what to do and wanting to do the right thing. And what I would recommend is to learn how to be more conscious, just like we do in therapy. We can't address what's unconscious, what we can't see, what we're not willing to see, what's a blind spot. So really to use this time to look, be aware, be curious and to ask those questions. And again, I, it's not something I'm gonna get right all the time, I might get it wrong a lot of the time, but to ask for patience in those we are having discussions with, um, and to say that this is new, and that there's a desire to know, and to stay in that space. You know, I think it's okay to not know all the answers, and to not have all the solutions. We're not going to. Yeah. But to stay in this space of curiosity, I think, is really powerful. And I think at the moment, you know, I look at my kids and they're so, for lack of a better word, kind of woke. You know, it's a generation that really sees the problems in the world. Yeah. And they really want to change it from mental health to race relations to institutionalized racism. And that there's a difference between prejudice kind of a psychology of difference, right? We're all tribal. So there's a tendency to trust what we know and distrust what we don't know. And that's the way we're designed. But intellect and education can change that. And to not say, well, my best friend or I have friends who are black, therefore I'm not. 
you know, to understand that it's not that simplistic. Yeah. That just because you have a friend doesn't mean that you get the whole experience. And so I think just to get comfortable in this place of unknown is where we to be, but a willingness to do better. Yeah. Yeah. I Go ahead, Danita. Um, what, what Lucky said um, kind of triggers some things for me, too, is like I feel like I heard Amanda Seals say, she's like, there's an explosion of collective consciousness with, like Dr. Robbie just said, white people becoming more woke and this and that. But us as people of color, we've been woke forever, the whole time. And it's like 450 years, it's like how much longer? And I feel that this movement is stirring people up. And I'm a, I, sometimes I'm like, are they serious? Are they just jumping on it because it's a yeah. popular thing to do? Or are exactly. they really down for the cause? Because we need to see action. Like, instead of us having, we have to get past the conversations. We have to start doing some things because we as black people can't change racism. The onus is on the majority of people to change this. Like, no, it's, right. we, we're doing what we can. We've been doing it. We live it every day, but it's like, you know, like you, a lot of people, they enjoy the privilege. They enjoy the comforts of what they have. Some people are uncomfortable with change. And I think like you said earlier, it's going to have to take some change. Like, Education, because we as a culture will win when everybody's ability to shine and um, but but then back to system, systemic uh, racism, they took Black right. history out of the books and yeah. education. Like we we like and then that, we got oh we got to be educated. We were educated, but they took that out. Right. So it's like right who's making these decisions? Like let's let's keep it real. Like we're not doing well, that. I you know. Um, I would I was, like to. I was listening to this reporter saying, "What's different about this moment? Because it does feel different. It's, yeah. it's a global moment, and I think what feels different, and it's the power of video, and it's the power of what we see. Mm -hmm. You know, in some of these other cases, there was the question, what happened before? You know, like was right. this it before? And we see in this moment, nothing happened before. It was just pure racist sadism." Exactly. And, well, so and, and, the, and the fact that um, it went on, I mean, what I can't get over, and I don't want to, I don't want to just the conversation to revolve around the act itself, because I want us to move into the point of the, the original question itself. I think my, for me is the fact that this guy, literally people were screaming at him <laughs> to stop that he did not stop. So it's something that he was used to. Like when you react in that way, you've, you've done that before. You have yeah, done it, you have done it, and done it before. It is yeah. subconscious, you have done that yeah. plenty of times and it feels normal and natural. So this was not new to him. Um, and that's just my interpretation of that. But when you deconstruct the act, right? When you deconstruct the case of George Floyd, because there's a lot of mixed reviews with him because people continue, and I see this on social media, I'm, I'm paying attention to everything, trust me. I'm listening to both sides, to every side, up, down, every which way, to really get a, a holistic understanding of different perspective and voices to have an a real honest, informed opinion. You know, people are bringing up this man's criminal past. Um, yeah. They're saying that he, you know, he held up a woman, uh, you know, with a gun. Um, I'm not, I, per, me personally, Vanessa Coppas, because I've had family members in the 
prison system, I will tell you myself that once a person has paid their dues and has um, gone on to society, it is not that cut and dry as people make it seem as if it is, oh, now he's out, paid his dues. He can go on and make a life for himself. Literally, everything is harder, if not even harder, uh, than before they were in the system to get back into a normal life. And he was conflicted. Like, okay, people try to justify the fact, well, he was high. He was what I, I saw a man die on camera. I, and that act alone should be enough to right. rile everybody up because that is unacceptable <laughs> for a man to be killed by another per like that is unacceptable. Period. Um, Period. I hear you all talking about like education will fix it. And I do think that I personally, I went so I grew up in a small town outside of Houston. And then uh, when I was growing up, uh, we didn't have Black History Month at my school, right? So my mom, she actually went to the same high school as George Floyd. We actually know wow. some of the people who know him. Uh, she would take us to that high school every year to celebrate Black History. They did a program. It wasn't until I went to Howard University where I was taught things that, you know, my parents hadn't taught me about my, my, my culture, my people. I do think that it's, I personally believe that every American should take African American history that in high school where they learn about more than just slavery. I also right. think that change isn't going to happen from us having, change will happen from us having these conversations, but it's, let's put some fire underneath the Democratic Party, all of these politicians and, and force them to really put forth policies that protect and um, break down these barriers and the systematic racism. And until then, I think that we're still going to have this happen. A month from now, another one will happen. We will have another RIP. Maybe marches will continue, but when people go back to work, they don't have time to take off to go protest. So right. if, if something doesn't change, me personally, I'm for dismantling the police, but that's a whole other situation. <laughs> but I do think that some real concrete policies need to happen yeah. and we need to enforce um, our governors, our local government officials to really force change or nothing's going to happen. Lucky. I, and then Stella, go ahead. Yeah. Off of you, um, Ebony. Um, that accountability is, is a big thing for these police, these government officials, you know, because they speak in every couple of years and they need our votes and they jump on the march, you know, and they do what they do to please us, um, in a couple photos. But holding these officers and people who do wrong by our communities accountable by actual laws that are in place, by us becoming decision makers and our white counterparts accepting us to come in and do these and helping and voting us in and helping us get there, that is going to be a part of real change. You cannot be scared to transition of power. You know what I mean? Because I think a lot of people in power feel real fear is if we get the power, then they will be right. And that's the thing want. And, um, I think history has proven on the side how compassionate our community is. Um, almost to a fault, you know what I mean? Just to be honest, you know, we're, we're that compassion to a fault and we've allowed too much. So thank you for say, saying that, Ebony, because that was right on my heart. I appreciate mm -hmm. it. 
Mm -hmm. Well, and, and to your point of education, I obviously grew up you know, idolizing Christopher Columbus. And I have to say, my, cho my, my children haven't. Uh, my children know the clear difference now, which I'm actually very proud of. And I was in my 30s when I was like, well, it's about damn time that people realize that this man was not a god, you know? Right. So, um, and, you know, it's really fascinating to see, you know, my son, 11, who now takes, obviously, you know, Amer he took Amer uh, history uh, last year, world history last year, and was like, this guy was not very nice. I'm like, I know. I know that. Yes. <laughs> I know your history. That's right. Don't ever let anybody tell you different. Um, because I go back to the Dominican Republic and we have this huge monument to for Christopher. And I'm like, when are they going to tear this shit down? Like, when are they going right. to take this down? So yeah. I completely agree that um, I, mean, I think education has changed to a certain extent. Um, but it definitely uh, needs, I know that the efforts that I as a company am making is, you know, and any donations and investment that I'm continuing to make is in education, because I think that's where the root of it is uh initially um i'm not for dismantling the police but uh, i do agree i do agree that a lot of changes need to be made um and it's it starts with accountability and that's the beauty of having a difference of opinions right, right. we can and right. and here's the here's the beauty of this conversation we've all expressed our viewpoints and nobody's out to get anybody and i think that's the first step uh to having you know conversations like because there's difficult i mean i i almost cried at moments where you know some of you were speaking and i got a little you know jumped up out of my seat with another cop but you have to take a step back and take a breath and realize that we if we all want to be agents of change we have to be here for each other listen first and um you know then act i i think uh to end it uh if there is one um piece of advice that you could give um anyone who wants to fight the good fight uh which is in the end you know our shared humanity and uh our love and compassion for one another what would you say to them vivian let's start with you oh. um you know what they said really resonated with me about you know you know, I, I have a lot of my like friends that I love and they are in this space where it's like, oh, it's so negative and it's so hurtful and I don't want to, you know, like I, I'm with you, but I don't want to. And I'm like, well, that's your privilege. Okay. That's your privilege talking that you're allowed to friggin' turn it off. Like yeah. you have to watch the movies exactly. and you have to read the book. Yeah. You have to have these conversations. So it's like, and, and I do it even with my parents. You, I mean, um, Vanessa, you probably know my mom is 88. My dad's 95. Oh. And I was like thinking to myself, All right, I got to go visit them first because I want to march. And I don't want to march and then go visit them because <laughs> <laughs> I had to like negotiate the COVID with the, you know. <laughs> just, oh, it's those conversations because you can really love people and really still have these things to push the envelope and it makes yeah. me uncomfortable but i need yeah. to do it and that's why i did this right because yeah. i do the wrong thing i don't know you know it could go that way um but it's my it's my it's my honor to do it right like it's not a burden it's my honor and responsibility to do it awesome thank you vivian stella 
Yes. Um, so a couple of things I just wanted to add because we were talking about history um, earlier on. I don't know how many people are aware of the collaboration between uh, Jason Reynolds and Abram X. Candy with the book Stamped Racism into Racism in You. It's a remix from the National Book Award um, winning book. And basically it tears down everything that we were taught about history, broke down every misconception we had, and gave us the truth. I feel like this book has to be the number one resource in every high school in the United States because we've been learning history wrong all this year. I learned American history in South America. It's all wrong. It's all wrong. So um, again, this is called Stamps um, and it's by Jason Reynolds and um, Ibram X. Candy. Uh, both of them very extremely knowledgeable on this topic and just amazing. Um, the other, the part that I will say is as an educator, this is not, this is not work that I've been doing now or in the past two weeks because we have the murder of George Floyd. Um, I, raising our critical consciousness and making sure that we celebrate all our, our children for who they are, starting by seeing the color, all their identities, and not asking them to leave any pieces of them at the door, but bring it all into the classroom, is an advocacy work that I feel very strongly about. I do feel we have a lot of work to do in education to reconstruct and dismantle a lot of practices that we're just not honoring our students. So. Um, for me, the work starts with a lot of listening. Mm -hmm. um, it continues with a lot of reading. And it also is about embedding and raising and celebrating Black culture. It can't be that we're only talking about how Black lives matter in the content of death and in the content of killing. There is Amen. so much joy and brilliance that we need to lift. So those are the pieces that um, I I'm want to I'm glad you brought that up for the following reason, because it's like, I, I, I literally told a friend this uh, the other day and I said, you listen to Cardi B, you listen to Beyonce, you, you want to, you, you want to, you want to tell, come back and tell me I woke up like this. You need to get behind this. Like you gotta like, you know, get by, talk about this because you can't just be there for the talking about, right? You gotta, you gotta be there when it matters and when it hurts because that's really, that's true advocacy. So I'm glad that you brought that up. Uh, Ebony, your one piece of advice. Um, my one piece of advice is to always use your voice. Um, you know, when you, I know this is bigger than George Floyd, but when you look at that tape and you see the other police officers there, they were there, they knew right from wrong, and they should have used their voice. And I, and I did hear a piece that, you know, one of them was kind of questioning it, but just in general, um, we all have a platform, and I just think that we just need to use our voice to stand up for what's right, and by doing so, we can help change, be implemented, and hopefully make a better America. Awesome. Robbie? Uh, you know, I used to think just kind of, I, I guess I, I would think, well, if you just kind of ignore it, that's kind of the way to go um, before all of this. 
So what I th I'm thinking now is that if we're not feeling uncomfortable, if we're not feeling maybe blamed as a white person even, um, then maybe we're not having the right conversations. Sure. So to be willing to put yourself in that discomfort, and if you're not, then maybe we're not doing it right. And to just consider a different way of interacting and holding ourselves to a different level of success. And I would say that's what success looks like to me now. Awesome, thank you, Bobby. Mm. <laughs> that was good. Danita? Yeah. Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> Sending you an Afro pick in the mail. That was good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Please with the fist. <laughs> All right, there you go. I, I might not be doing it right, but I'm trying. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, so, so thank you for being that honest moment, Dr. Robbie. Um, and I feel like it's a matter of our heart. Like we have to see people the way God sees people. You know, like, like people are doing what they can. I'm here for the apology. I appreciate it. Some people uh, have to learn in different, that protest comes in many different ways and forms. And I kind of feel like, um, like we have to keep ad adding productive value to the conversation. Keep going. Figure out what medium you can do to get to that end. Like, are you the person that will help get people registered to vote? Are you helping to donate to certain campaigns? Like, what it is that you can do? And like, figure out your position and then serve with those serve with your resources like figure out what you can do and, and stay consistent because we can we can change this we can do it but but just don't jump on a bandwagon because it's the topic now let's let's stick this out you know only time will tell. thank you teresa um i think i'm jotting because i was like i don't want to lose this i don't want to lose this but um because it's kind of a combination of some of the things that everyone has said but I think the most important thing that we can do is use our individual voices, like Ebony said, to dismantle whatever parts of the system that we have access to to dismantle that have gotten us to this point, but also lean into the discomfort mm -hmm. and be willing to, to walk through it. Because I think that's what happens to us. That's why we don't move forward. We get to the yeah. part where it's uncomfortable and really we stop. Hard. Yeah. We, we stop when we get to the heart. And just like therapy, when you hit that wall, the, the day that you go to that therapist's office and you feel that in your stomach and you cry and you're mad, and that's the day that you don't make that next appointment, it's the same thing here. When we get yeah. to that point and we feel something in our stomach and we're uncomfortable on both sides of, of uh, cause I've had to, there are some friends that I've, I've had to read some things and I felt something in my stomach cause these are people that I love that I'm gonna have to maybe cut. <laughs> literally and literally, I don't know. Oh. But that, that discomfort and having those, those courageous conversations, that's, that's where the magic is. The magic happens when you lean into the discomfort. Thank you. Lucky? Um, yeah, I mean, everybody has pretty exactly what I wanted to say. The only thing I'm going to add to this is my advice would be be willing to plant the seed and not eat the fruit. Mm. That is how die hard we have to be for this battle. And it can't just be us. Yeah. It has to be our allies as well. You have to be willing to get up every day of your life the way we do because I can't go home and take the skin off. You know what I mean? I'm up 
black. I walk black. I sleep black. Everything I do is black. Okay, I'm wearing black, child. You see, couch. <laughs> but what I'm what I'm really saying is, you have to be willing to die for this cause. Yeah. The same way our brothers and sisters in the past have put their lives on the line. And just a matter of fact, I'm I, I gotta make sure the story is 100 percent true. But I know recently a young lady, a young white girl, lost her life. Yeah. On the front lines, a young white girl, um, because she couldn't get the asthma treatment she needed and, and died in the middle. Yeah, of in Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. As much as that story hurts, that's the type of sacrifice this battle needs. And look, this was a child that made that kind of sacrifice, which probably is hundred percent hurting her family, but it's showing that we have real allies that are really walking the walk with us and talking yeah. the talk. So we just have to be willing to plant those seeds and not eat the fruit, but know that a change will come because we did our best to our last breath. Yeah. Jennifer? <laughs> you know, uh, touching on what, what Lucky said and Teresa, what you said, I think it's important to talk about it no matter how uncomfortable it is. Um, and, you know, just a personal story, which I don't usually tell, but I will, why not? Um, you inspired me. Um, I grew up uh, in a household that, for a few years, I lived with a stepfather who was very abusive and very racist. Um, and I learned at a young age that, you know, I was different because I came from Middle Eastern descent. You know, I heard racial slurs. Um, and then getting older, you know, I had people in my life very close to me, very important to me that were black. And I realized very quickly that if that was going to be the case, then I would take abuse for it. Um, so I think that when this all, you know, resurfaced and we started talking about it, I was scared because you associate, you know, standing up for what's right with sometimes being met with backlash and it's scary, um, but you have to, and you have to have these conversations. And even since we started talking about it, you know, Bella, I've had this conversation with other people um, and it can be sad and it can be scary, but you have to. And um, I'm just happy to, you know, be here with all of you and hear your stories. Well, you girl, you you're my you you know you're my work wife boo, so stop it. <laughs> um, and you said something, you know, uh, that we've started to have these conversations at Bella. I I would like to think that we've been having these conversations, especially since August first of last year, since I took over, because I made a conscious decision to make diversity and inclusion part of the everyday conversation of everything that we do, all the content that we're putting out. Um, you know, it was interesting to obviously even ask the question before, how often do you think about race and ethnicity? I think about it every single second, every decision that I'm making to put content out there. We're getting ready to launch um, a new campaign called Be Human, and um, which is just a way to uh, highlight and, and you know bring a light to the forefront that the fact that we're all human uh, this month is dedicated our campaign is dedicated to pride because we have part of our Bella community members who are part of the LGBTQ community and we're gonna you know it's an ongoing effort to shed light on humanity and when um, I was sent the models with the t-shirts I was like you need to go back and send me a, you know a black person a latina person like i need to be i need to feel represented in all of this and when she came back to me she was like you know it's really hard to find models uh of um diverse models for this you know 
just a white t-shirt. It's just, it's not that hard. It's, it's really hard. So um, I had to direct her to, you know, and she was like, oh my God, this is a great new resource for me because I was not thinking outside of, you know, what I knew. So um, to the point of, you know, what can we do? I have taken a stance, um, I think even more so than before, that this will always continue to be a part of, because my goal is to normalize this, right? To normalize uh, diversity in every aspect that we cover um, from, and you can hear my dogs in the background, so I knew that was going to happen at some point. Uh, I'm surprised you don't hear my children killing themselves in the back. Um, but the point is that, you know, um, I've, I felt it. I felt it even, um, you know, up to, uh, even until I became the editor-in-chief of this publication, I felt uh, that in some instances I was treated differently uh, or left out of opportunities because of. Uh, and I simply decided to make it a point to never make anyone feel that way. Um, you know, and it starts at the top. It starts with me. Um, it starts in the way that I lead my team. Uh, I have to say my team is a freaking kick-ass team. I would hope that everyone can, um, you know, land such an amazing, extraordinary group of human beings who believe in um, being kind and nice and doing the right thing and who are extremely passionate about what they do. So we will continue to do that, um, you know, as much as we possibly can and bringing, you know, stories to light. And I encourage all of you, if you have people in your community that you want us to highlight and share to continue to amplify, please do not hesitate to uh, send them our way because we've made it an active part of everything that we do is to continue to expand and highlight um melanated voices right if that because i think that's the ha the hashtag is you know amplify melanated voices i'm like girl we've been doing that since day one we've been doing that since day one but we will continue to do so um to end i am yes anita <laughs> um I, I, we'll continue the conversation because I have some things I want to input with Bella as far as the team after. But you mentioned being diverse and multicultural. I listened to Rick Warren this morning. He's a pastor. And he said being diverse and, and multicultural isn't enough. We have to be yeah. anti-racist. Yeah. And I think that we got to push it forward. And I'm glad that you opened this conversation. But I do want to be a part of the collective with Bella to maybe tweak some things that we can help 100 percent yeah we could talk about later so 100 gotcha. thank you and i appreciate that um just as i appreciate each and every one of you for taking the time to be number one so honest uh to open your heart uh and uh the one thing that i hope is that whoever's listening and if you don't mind we can turn this into a bella tv episode because i think it's so important uh to share that um that we have helped and served um just probably you know expand expand your point of view a little bit and um i think you know that's where empathy comes in right try to see things from another person's shoes so thank you all so very much Bye. Bye.